what we need most is to be organized. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like when we're organized, you know, we can actually win solutions to change the apocalyptic hellscape. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where giant alien lizards have taken up residence in Earth's oceans and their all-day, all-night whale and tube worm parties are making David Attenborough mad. I'm your host, Nino. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking to Sarah Stockholm. Sarah is the National Network Strategic Campaigns Director for Surge, a.k.a. Showing Up for Racial Justice. Surge, if you've never encountered them, is dedicated to organizing white folks as part of a multiracial movement to dismantle white supremacy. Personally, Surge has been the primary organization helping me to know where to fit in and what to do that will be the most helpful to organizers of color on the front lines in the last few years. So I'm beyond grateful to Sarah for the work that she's done and continues to do. And I'm so excited to talk to them today about imagining a future without white supremacist capitalism and about how they arrived at this work. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Thank you. I'm excited for the conversation. So let's start with a bit of a bio. Sarah Stockholm is an organizer, popular educator, theater of the oppressed practitioner, and writer from rural working class communities in South Dakota, with over a decade of experience waitressing and working for collective liberation. She has worked on a variety of organizing issues, including Palestinian and indigenous solidarity, tenant protections, climate justice, police accountability, and U.S. militarism. Sarah loves spending time with her sisters, dancing to live music, and rock climbing in the Pacific Northwest, which is where she currently lives. Well, to get started, what brought you to the work of organizing other white folks for racial justice? Well, as an organizer, I'm usually the person asking this question. Um, and so <laughs> the tables are turned. It's, it's kind of hard to know even where to begin because there's a lot mm. of stories that I that I could tell um, about who I am and how I got into organizing white folks. But yeah, as you, as you said, you know, I grew up in rural South Dakota and rural where I come from means you drive 60 miles to get to a Walmart. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really, it's isolating geography, not to mention the political landscape, which we'll, we'll get to later. Um, mm-hmm. But my parents divorced when I was really young and that sort of thrust me into existing into different worlds. Mm-hmm. My bio dad and that side of my family, you know, would talk about all politicians being corrupt, but then quickly blame immigrants and black people for the problems of the world. Mm. And next to my dad's house is a state prison. So that meant both a paycheck um, and, you know, being an enforcer of law and order and racial capitalism for folks in my family and, and in the community in this really small town. My dad's pride really came from his work. He's run his own body shop since he was in the eighth grade. And my grandma on this side had a huge influence on me. She was just always doing something to build community. She built what we'd call today a mutual aid program to give rides to seniors and folks without transportation to medical appointments, which again, that might be 30 to 100 miles away. Wow. She just really always valued me for being myself and, and gave all of her grandkids a lot of the nurturing that we weren't always getting, you know, in our own homes. Um, so until my mom remarried, um, we got by on social services and, and our grandpa on that side looked out for us while my mom was, you know, juggling, raising two kids and, and going back to college. Mm. So she's the kind of woman who doesn't take shit from anybody. Um, and will fight for anyone who's been wronged by the system. You know, both my mom and my stepdad encouraged us to think for ourselves, question authority. I mean, needless to say, they sort of expected me to rock the boat. Um, (laughs) And they both worked on reservations um, and were really committed to their work. So at the dinner table, I was schooled in what it meant to have white privilege and, and that I would need to build trusting relationships with Native folks or people of color more generally because they had every reason to distrust, you know, me and and white people. Mm. So kind of all of this is like in my background, but I also grew up in the Episcopal church and that's where I think my first leadership development really took place. I learned, you know, to facilitate and coordinate collective work and just really took to heart the, the expectation of being of service to my community. So Later in college, I went to a women's Catholic college and it was the radical nuns and Catholic workers yeah. who just like brought me to my like first big anti-war protest who taught me about, you know, anti-racist traditions and the importance of challenging patriarchy, capitalism, all of it. 
and and I'm not a Christian, but uh, I am spiritual. And many folks in my faith-based organizing world, as well as indigenous leaders, really gave me a spiritual home in the movement. Um, so I, I really, you know, see the movement building work as as much as it is spiritual, as it is, you know, about material. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get, I guess, deeper into why I turned to organizing white people specifically, mm-hmm. I returned home to South Dakota after college. And uh, mind you, I was voted least likely to return. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's quite a yearbook category. <laughs> Jokes on me because I did, and um, and I did because I felt really tired of the radical left and the anarchists that I had found um, in college, and felt like the most important thing I could do for the movement was to go where my peers weren't going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up in a teaching training program in my hometown, and this is you know a town of twenty five hundred people. It's a school district that's almost half native and it's, it's still literally just like waging an outright racist cultural genocide war against indigenous people. I mean, we're talking about it being 2010 and the school district, you know, allowing Christian prayers in the school while telling Lakota elders that they can't sing an honor song at graduation, you know, because we speak English here and that's religious. Wow. Yeah. So on top of all of that, that that same year um, that I was, you know, teaching in my school district that I had grown up in, some white students wore homemade white pride t-shirts to school. Oh wow. Yeah. So I started meeting with some native and other white families, and we all kind of knew we had to do something more than just brush that shit under the rug. Yeah. So what became clear, I think, during this time for me was that white people hold all the power um, and that nothing was going to improve unless we actually challenged that power. So we started doing, you know, all of the anti-racist education sort of stuff, but it honestly felt pretty unsatisfying. Um, Like, yes, I was examining white supremacy in myself and and valued those spaces to have, you know, like the courageous conversation, but those were all individual solutions to a collective problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So eventually I realized I I needed organizing mentors and that it it wasn't enough to be a, a, you know, a white person with a good critique of white supremacy or just to be an ally. What I needed to to figure out um, was really how white people could be moved to actually join a multiracial movement so we can all get free. And and I think this is Mm -hmm. this is like the thing I'm still like working out today. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the thing about kind of moving into this leftist social space and the story that you're telling has so many strands in it that are not part of like the story of white rural America, and then so many strands that are. And I can, I just imagine, you know, it must have been really kind of alienating to to kind of find peers who also like totally couldn't see you. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a very isolating place. And that was a part of like why eventually I needed to kind of leave um, Mm -hmm. was because I, I lacked, I lacked peers and I lacked mentorship in that space. So you're, you're kind of talking about self education and educating other white folks in your hometown and telling this story of where you come from and how it brings you to this moment. And I I wanted to hone in a little bit on a campaign that I know that you led back at the beginning of the pandemic. For listeners, this is how Sarah and I were introduced. Um, my wife was working on a team that Sarah was leading to make phone calls to folks who had at some point said that they would be interested in hearing from Surge. And the idea was that Surge volunteers would call folks up and talk to them about the story behind their investment in prison abolition specifically. And the idea was that by getting folks to narrativize why abolition mattered to them, you could kind of firm up their commitment and bring them into organizing, like how to get individuals invested in that collective movement that you're talking about. And that was partly because there was such an urgent need at the time, which was to stand with prisoners who were in so much danger from the pandemic. And it struck me overhearing parts of those conversations kind of from the other room that it was so much about storytelling and and writing ourselves into the history of the country. 
to like find new new narratives for how we belong here in order to kind of think about what we believe and and how we act. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about narrative and how storytelling plays into your work as an activist and and how you've kind of found it to fit into this project that you're talking about of finding a way to kind of recalibrate a movement of white folks against white supremacy? Yeah. Well, first of all, I I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think for me, just like kind of taking a step back and thinking about the distinction between being an organizer and an activist. Um, And I think this is only something that organizers actually care about, Um, (laughs) but I'm going to say it for everyone's benefit. I hope Um, I've never been a very good activist good activists are out there and they're ready to like fight every battle, whether they have people with them at their side or they're going out on their own. Mm -hmm. I'm an organizer. So that means, you know, I really need to strategize in this analogy for like the full war. I've got to actually think about where we're headed in six months and six years. And and honestly, we should be thinking about 60 years from now. Mm. So it's, it's my job to light, you know, a fire in the belly of everyday people by asking them hard questions about the world as it is and always be behind them to encourage and train and then ask them to do something useful that contributes to that strategy. So mm-hmm. a good organizer, you know, we shouldn't be out there on our own. We're the ones who are finding people, developing their leadership and getting out of the way. Mm-hmm. So to the point around narrative, you know, if I don't take the time to genuinely ask why people showed up. If I don't invite their stories of struggle and pain, anxiety and fear, their stories of hope, love, commitment, their values, then I'm, I'm really just not doing my job. You know, organizers have to give people the place uh, to talk about themselves, their, their community, their family, their understanding of the world. Because if the people we're bringing into the movement don't know who they are or where they come from or how all of that gives them insight into this Mm. like sort of fucked up apocalyptic thing we're trying to survive in, then they're really not going to be able to talk to anyone else about about real struggles or real possibilities for change. And if they can't do that, you know, I just have to ask the question, like, what's the point of all the meetings? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It seems particularly important for for white people, too, because so often – uh, I think we're kind of socialized into this idea that like it's all very distant from us. And like one of the sort of things that white supremacy dangles in front of white people is this idea that like you're going to be OK, you know, yeah. like 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 sure, it's all apocalyptic, but, you know, you're special. So so you're going to be protected and, you know, you're distant from this and that at, at its worst, obviously, it leads to people trying to protect that privilege. But I think, you know, even for folks who don't really want to protect that privilege, it can still lead to this like kind of charity mentality where you're like, well, I'm coming in from my safe place Mm. when, when none of us are safe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. And, and the thing is like, you know, I actually really don't think white people are benefiting from this system. Um, And I think it takes real honest conversation to like go deeper than just, um, you know, the sort of surface things of, I'm thinking of like the unpacking white privilege sort of framework mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and to go deeper. And, and, and I think I, you know, there's this, this piece that happens in, in white anti-racist spaces where there's this tendency to be kind of like white people are welcome, but you need to sit down and shut up. I mean, I've, I've literally heard that come out of people's mouths. Yeah. I'm like, wow, what kind of invitation is that? You know, yeah. um, <laughs> Like, do we want to build a real, like, powerful multiracial movement that can defeat the rights, racist, capitalist, authoritarianism? Because if we do, we have to invite people's full selves in the rooms. And it starts mm-hmm. with their their story, you know. So o- over the last two years since that, that time, um, you know, that you're referencing in the recruitment phone bank, I've coached so many white people into telling their story publicly. And they might share a story about getting arrested, assaulted, growing up without enough to eat, watching their family struggle under the pain of whiteness, all sorts of stories that describe how they have something to gain by joining this movement. So we all actually have self-interest in the need to change this world. And in Surge, we talk a lot about shared interest. And this 
means what's in the interest of, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color is also in white people's interests. So what I do through the storytelling is help our majority white base, you know, tell that story of shared mm-hmm. interest, um, which is a really different story than, um, you know, coming to this work out of a place of guilt or or shame. Yeah. You know, organizing out of guilt and shame is like not transformative. It is not <laughs> the organizing work that our world needs. You know, like I said, I grew up near and on Lakota reservations. Mm-hmm. So the community kind of lessons that I absorbed through Lakota community was, you know, that stories are everything. <laughs> um, and the stories that we tell are actually woven into every cell of who we are. So when I hear someone tell their story, their unique and very personal reason for being in this work... I like almost always tear up because, you know, Mm -hmm. I just really believe that when we actually speak our stories to each other, it, it changes some of that DNA in us. It actually imprints a new story about what it means to be human in, into our cells and into the DNA of, of our movement. So again, when white people figure out and can tell a story that connects, you know, theirs or ours, for those of us who are white, our liberation, you know, to the liberation of all people of this planet, you know, then it's like, oh, wow, they're really figuring out as Anne Braden, who's Mm -hmm. a white anti-racist ancestor of ours. She would say, you know, that we are in this, you know, as if our lives depended on it. And that's like what we need white people to get to is, is shifting to this place of like, my life depends on the liberation of other people. It depends on racial justice. It depends on ending white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, When I see a person shift into that place, I can trust that they're going to stay in the work. You know, they're going to stay in through the hardest of times, the roughest of waters, because like this is not easy work that we're doing. Um, And so storytelling, I think, is that place that can shift so much more about how we do the work. We've had so many conversations here on the podcast about the, the idea of shame. Mm. And just just hearing you bring that up, it it reminds me of those conversations. And we've talked about Shame and isolation is also a really important theme for me. And you're so highlighting how isolating and individual it is to come to a space like this in a mode of feeling guilt and shame. It's like a a force that locks you down and prevents you from communicating and connecting with other people because it's sort of like this idea of like, either I'm going to do penance or I'm going to prevent this dark energy from attaching to or getting mm. on other people. And while that starts in a place of like legitimately thinking, you know, oh, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody. The reality is you're also distant and, and and kind of trapped in that. And I love the idea of storytelling as a way of getting outside that mentality and thinking about this as something that we would all be doing as a community and as a group. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the pandemic because obviously that's on my mind. You know, having said isolation is a theme I'm interested in and also thinking about everyone's shared stories of existing under global pandemic. And I'm just curious whether you think that the pandemic created an opportunity for reaching people um, specifically on the subject of prison abolition in a new way, like maybe did the pandemic create opportunities for people to empathize with or humanize incarcerated people? How has that become part of the part mm, of the conversation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes. <laughs> um, I, I think back to those early months of the pandemic when it became clear that virtually all of our institutions were unprepared for this historic moment mm. that created the space where people needed everyday people needed to come together to figure out solutions because we we realized that we we couldn't trust the leadership to do that on our behalf right yeah. um and because you know mainly black and brown and incarcerated and formerly incarcerated organizers 
had been building organizations and resistance to incarceration for a very long time. Mm -hmm. The movement was actually able to kind of catch the winds of the pandemic, you know, take the opportunity that um, the pandemic offered to push for decarceration, to push for early release. And, And ultimately, you know, what we saw is this this narrative open up about the need for abolition. Mm. And I think that for, you know, many white people who had come to surge during that moment, which was like an unprecedented moment for us, um, <laughs> you know, just waves of white people throughout 2020 were realizing that they they needed to do something else. Um, they needed to act differently, not just individually, but collectively. And I think that a lot of these folks had known intellectually that jail conditions were bad, that incarceration was out of control, that it was impacting black and brown communities. But I I do think this point of the kind of reality of actually witnessing people who are literally caged in in a cell in a COVID hotspot um, cause like a really visceral human response to demand freedom. Just a, a little bit of a check to be like, oh, like this is actually pretty unsupportable for a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm. It also occurs to me, I want to think about the idea of apocalypse more broadly here because COVID isn't the only apocalypse of our times. And we're just in this this period of massive, constant flux and change. And I don't know, I'm just curious just to look through the lens of, of crisis and apocalypse and and change and talk about the work in terms of that. And I'm wondering, you know, and the people you're working with and the space you're in, what kind of resources do you think people are needing um, at this point in the pandemic? Um, what is helping people get through right now? Mm. Yeah, this theme of like apocalypse, I think sparks a lot because back in the 2008 financial crisis, if you can like transport yourself back to that moment, (laughs) um, my friends and I were like fantasizing kind of about this theme of apocalypse. Like that's when the sort of apocalyptic thinking for me really began. And it was in that context of financial collapse. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we really had this feeling that, you know, we need to get ready because shit's going down. Um, and then it's like fast forward to 2020, you know, we have the pandemic, we have multiple climate disasters, the uprising, the organizing to get Trump out of office, so much at stake that was feeling so visceral and and for so many people, I mean, this the experience yeah. of the pandemic is global. It's like one thing that has touched every single person's life. Um, it's not just an isolated thing in one part of the country or one part mm-hmm. of the world. So all of these things are happening. I think we really felt this collective impending doom. And we didn't know, you know, like how everything was going to play out. There's this really unwritten future. So I think, you know, right now there's a much broader felt sense that that capitalism is actually ruining our lives. Yeah. And I see this because, you know, across the country and around the world, there's increased food insecurity. There's lack of affordable housing, increased cost of living, but the bosses aren't increasing the wages, right? The government isn't responding with collective solutions, with social solutions. I mean, we're really living in a neoliberal nightmare. So I think just like, that's the apocalypse, right? And, And that's been like planned, that's been orchestrated by the right. You know, people have been creating institutions, have like been funding policy, you know, think tanks have been have been organizing to create the world that we live in. So I think pulling back into the moment, like regarding the pandemic, you know, the government gave us once again, individual solutions. They told us wear a mask, stay home, social distance, but that's not enough to address the compounding existing crises that are hyper visible and further escalated in the pandemic. So mm-hmm. when you ask me, like, what are the resources that people need? Like, what what do people really need? I think 
a labor leader recently, you know, told me in a group of people, you know, usually we hear this rhetoric of like, when we fight, we win. And she said, no, when we fight, we have the right to win. Mm. So it this shift of like, we may not win, right? We are up yeah. against many things, but we actually have to begin that fight for even the chance for the opportunity to win. Um, and so, you know, I just think that, you know, it's the multiracial working class organizing that's the vehicle to actually shift the power dynamics that are at play right now. And, and every day right now, we are hearing about newly organized workplaces. I mean, I cannot Mm, open Twitter without like another announcement of a, of a labor win. And, (laughs) <laughs> Amazing. And obviously, you know, the biggest, most visible labor wins, you know, being in, in Amazon warehouse and it was Starbucks workers, you know, and there's so many more wins that are happening. Um, so it's like, w- you know, we don't have to live the rest of our lives in these overlapping apocalypses. Um, mm. If we choose to fight, you know, we can create a pathway out of this. And and I think that's what people need the most, that we like, we need a path to another future. Yeah. Ugh. That just reminds me of some some talk I, I've seen several times where people have kind of looped around to be critical of the rhetoric of self-care mm-hmm. around like, you know, focus on individual wellness and it's this this same thing where it's like elements of that are valuable in the same sense as like, of course, we need to wear masks. But, you know, the, the problem is much larger than like, oh, I didn't focus enough on self-care today. It's we're living in these incredibly oppressive systems. And the thing that's going to feel good and make us feel well is working with mm. other people, right? Like not just having, I don't know, avocado toast or something because it's like (laughs) self-care for breakfast. (laughs) It's a face mask and it's breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's like coping, coping with the circumstances versus changing the circumstances. Mm, Yes. I, I, it makes me think too. I mean, even just about the question that you asked just before this, Nat, you know, talking about like isolation and, and the experience of isolation in the pandemic and for me, one of the things that's been hard in this moment is sort of this this in-between liminal time where it's like we're not out of the isolationist woods in terms of like, you know, things have changed and we don't see when they're going to like go, quote unquote, back to normal and nor do we want them to. But we're also sort of disconnected from community in these profound ways. And I keep feeling this like longing for like. I don't know, like watching TV shows like that are like nostalgic for like a made up version of the 50s or 60s or something where everybody's like going on community picnics and like hanging out together. And like, um, and I don't know, I guess you're talking about like an, like a nostalgia for a future. <laughs> like, yeah, longing, this like longing for, yeah. for a different future. You know, the, the right, it sells this lie, you know, to, to white people, but, but also to, yes. uh, you know, many, many, many people that if we return to something that was normal, that was the before times, you know, it's always mm. this like thing in the past that existed when, when what we know is that means, you know, more power for capitalists, more power for, you know, white supremacy, more power for patriarchy. And, and like, I think, you know, the work that we have to do for the left is like, sometimes we get, we get so into like, just banging our head against that kind of wall and be like, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. This isn't the way this isn't the way, you know, and what we need to do is like, give ourselves the space to actually see a way forward, right? And invite people into that future, to this different future. We don't have to go back to the the past. We're never going to return to something that existed. But there is this this future that we can co-create, you know, together. Mm. Well, speaking of beforeness and going backness, and you were talking earlier about growing up in South Dakota. And one of the things I've seen you write about is having this deep connection to working class rural white people and also about the experience of moving to a major coastal city where you've been surrounded with politically like-minded folks. And on the show this season, one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is escape 
And that could mean heading off to another planet or just the desire to leave home. And I'm wondering how you connect your own history with leaving the place that you grew up. And, you know, you mentioned kind of going home again and then leaving again. And I'm wondering how you connect your own history with with leaving the place that you grew up and the land that you grew up on to the work that you do now. Mm. Do you feel like you had to escape South Dakota in order to be the person that you are? Oh, yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so seen right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this question, you know, of, of escape and becoming myself really plagued me for some time. South Dakota is, is very restrictive and it, anyone who rocks the boat is going to be tossed out of the boat. <laughs> mm. You know, when I started speaking up about racism, it became clear to all the white people around me that I was a race traitor. Uh-huh. So these white folks that I, you know, had had relationships with who I knew, like literally refused to talk to me or to look at me in, in the grocery store, you know, oh, wow. turn their back on me. And I was so young in my early 20s. And I really like had a lot of pain around that of like seeing like, okay, this is this is a choice, you know, to be a race trader yeah. means that some people are going to cut me off from relationship or going to cut me off from a place of belonging. And there's also this opening for a different place of belonging, right? Like, mm. What I felt at that time was a lot of pain. And I also like knew, you know, that kind of the social norms in South Dakota, you know, are really like young people, you know, you don't speak (laughs) unless you're asked to. And as a white woman, you know, you should be quiet. You should not say, Mm -hmm. you know, things. So Mm -hmm. I felt like there is a lot I needed to do internally in myself. I needed to confront my own, you know, internal dysfunction that was holding me back, that was keeping me small, that was that was telling me to like not rock the boat and to really get strong in myself and know who I am and to just to be myself, you know, I, I did really need to leave um, because I just couldn't do the healing work that I needed to do in a place where I was always going to be in an oppositional position all the time. I couldn't do that work when I felt like I had to protect myself and I didn't belong. It just didn't create the sort of opening to my own liberation that I needed to experience. Uh, So, you know, when I think, when I think of home, you know, to this day, I still think of a very specific place along the Missouri river. I think I've just like kind of come to terms with that, that like, it's, it's okay. Like my choice that I, that I needed to make, like I needed to migrate, you know, for a different life. I needed to shift where I was um, to really create a place of belonging that was going to nurture the, the work that I was seeing ahead of myself. Mm, Talking about this place along the Missouri river. And we've been talking a little bit about how, like when we're talking about interplanetary travel um, and thinking about these these new landscapes and the, you know the sort of like mythology of the frontier and the idea of the like you know new sublime landscape it, it makes me wonder kind of how i don't know like how the Missouri River shows up in your life now and like how how it comes with you mm, yeah i mean at, at my desk i have you know like many many pictures of <laughs> Of like that wide open prairie landscape and and of that river in particular, Um, you know, and I think for me, it's it's political, like the, like everything, I guess is. (laughs) It's like that, that river, you know, that's the that was the fight that that Standing Rock brought the world. It was a fight for that water. And, you know, I went to, to Standing Rock and I, and I spent time in South Dakota during that fight in 2016, because I so clearly felt like my mutual interest with this tribe and with indigenous people who were fighting for the water that I learned to swim in, mm-hmm. that I drank, that I bathed in, that still irrigates my family's farms along the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. So it's, felt really important, you know, for me to return to that place to bring 
you know, my family into that, into that place to be in camp with my stepdad, who's like bringing in supplies and he's wearing his like bolo tie and cowboy hat. And it's just like, what can I do? What, how can I fight for this? You know, and, and us going back to his, you know, his family, his brothers and talking about like, we are downstream from this. If we lose this battle against the Dakota Access Pipeline, like this is going to impact us. <laughs> South Dakota mm-hmm. is downstream from Standing Rock. So it was like, you know, it created this really beautiful place about, you know, home and and about that river and and uniting, you know, white folks um, in the area with indigenous folks. And I think that was you know, also that just a time that reinforced, like, I have to dig into one place. And I, and I ended up leaving Standing Rock probably within a week after the 2016 election. And I realized, okay, I can hold some space for white folks here. I can, you know, help create actions that are useful and, and strategic in this moment. But there's also just this need to like, be in one place and dig in and create community, mm. build with white people so that when the, you know, when the next Dakota Access Pipeline comes, when the next thing comes, there's organized white people to really help resist that and to build with communities of color instead of like needing to quickly, you know, kind of respond and like corral the white people and figure out what to do with mm. white people in that moment. Like we need yeah. We need our communities organized to be ready to 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 join um, a, a real multiracial movement. So that that river to me is like this this space of I don't know if like it it just taught me what interconnection looks like. It taught me what mutual interest feels like in my body and in and in our geography that is that is shared. Mm. I love that. Like just the idea that mutual interest is something that you can feel in your body is that's such a a cool Mm. way of saying that. You know, we've been talking about kind of belonging and those experiences of rejection Mm. from your community that you grew up in when you kind of, I guess, came out as a race trader. And I'm thinking about how Nat and I read an article as we were preparing for this interview in Convergence magazine where you and your fellow organizers, Aaron Heaney and Evelyn Lynn, describe the creation of Surge as, quoting the article here, a few mostly Southern working class white lesbians um, coming together to address the ways that the right uses racism to divide the working class. And my own experiences of Surge have been that it's a a very queer space. And I'm wondering, tying these threads together, and what do you think that it is that's kind of behind queer white people's investment in dismantling white supremacy in particular? Do you think that this is work that queer folks are maybe more prepared to do or I, I don't know like what are your thoughts on kind of queerness in, in yeah this well I'm glad you're pointing out that Surge is very queer because it is <laughs> um and I, it I I think it's felt for other people but I you know I don't always know um and I think there's you know there are a few connections that I can make and, and I think others would would obviously be making more but um personally you know I was I was bullied pretty significantly by homophobia in middle school. You know, like I received death threats from a group of kids because somehow they knew I was gay before I did. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's really amazing, you know? (laughs) But, you know, during that time, the principal told my mom, quote, boys will be boys. And well, you know, I look back and it really turned out that what she meant, white boys will be white boys Mm -hmm. because she gave that same line to the native parents of of one of my um, classmates who was assaulted by those same boys Mm -hmm. in our school. Oh, my God. Exactly. So for for me, you know, I think that this wasn't was a pretty early experience of injustice Mm -hmm. and, and a beginning of an understanding that 
that people with power were going to protect, you know, as bell hooks would say, the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. So it's like, I think these experiences of injustice and, and again, of finding mutual interests with folks of color are, are really common in the LGBTQ community broadly. But I also think that there's something like really specifically about queer and like being queer and queerness. Because for me, I was radicalized in queer community and and really see queerness as in, as inherently politically left and, and a radical tradition. So in, in my political formation, to be queer meant more than just a, about my sexual orientation or my romantic life. It also meant being anti-racist and it meant being anti-capitalist. You know, it meant listening to and learning from black and brown working class queers and trans people. Mm. And, and, it, and it meant creating community for, for our shared safety and, and a sense of belonging and family. And again, this theme of a future, right? Of a future where people aren't mm-hmm. seen as disposable. So, so I think, you know, for white queers to have those things, to have safety, belonging and a future, we absolutely have to dismantle, you know, not just white supremacy, but but racial capitalism, you know, this this marriage between white supremacy and capitalism. Hell yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, so to me, it, it makes a lot of sense, like like that surge itself is like this very queer place. Um, yeah. Love that so much. I wanted to talk about art a little bit. Mm continuing on with connections with queerness and the body and just finding ways of telling these stories as a writer and an artist myself. I'm obviously very connected with that as a route to explore these things and explore them in this political frame as well. And I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about theater, the oppressed Mm -hmm. and just how art and theater can be tools of liberation and, how you've worked with those tools yourself. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, to quickly encompass like what is theater of the oppressed for <laughs> the listeners who don't who don't know. Um, you know, theater of the oppressed has its roots in Brazil and it's sort of like, you know, founder, I guess, uh, the the person behind it, although there's many, always many more people than the person who writes the book mm-hmm. or, or yeah. Or is leading out front. Um, but Augusto Boal created this framework around theater of the press, which is really, it's popular education. So just like another Brazilian, we know um, Paulo Freire and the pedagogy of the press, this belief that people who are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. Mm-hmm. And using theater, using theatrical games and improv and just straight up performance that becomes then interactive is like the place of theater of the oppressed. So when a forum theater play is happening, you know, what what we do is we have worked a problem. You know, let's just say we we are all trying to, you know, grapple with what to do with sexism in the workplace or something. Mm. We showcase that problem. We do not tell the audience what the solution is. Instead, we invite the the audience to become participants in this struggle to figure out the solution. And they actually come up on stage. They don't tell their, you know, manifesto or their political (laughs) philosophy about like how is going to happen and what the policy is. No, they get up and they act it. They Mm -hmm. actually have to act out what that solution is through improv and through theater. So very quickly, when I found theater of the oppressed, and I'm being asked to not just use my head, not just use my intellect Mm -hmm. to narrate what a solution could be, I was asked to be in my body. (laughs) And it's, and, and the, the, all of the work around theater, the oppressed is about embodiment really. Um, And it's about feeling our pain, feeling and noticing trauma in our bodies. Um, And, and that was like quite challenging to me when I first started, when I was asked like, how does this feel when I'm in a certain 
shape or position or a role? How does this mm. feel inside? I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm. Like, what do you mean you feel this in your, like your leg or in your feet? You know, I was so <laughs> embodied when I, when I started. So, you know, theater, the press has, in, has invited me to really pay attention to the smallest of details, the subtlest of things that are happening around me. And, you know, Augusto Boal talked about um, this practice of theater of the oppressed about being rehearsal for the future. Mm. So if we, if we don't, you know, practice the interventions that are needed, right? If we're not training, if we're not taking this work really rigorously, then when a new opportunity comes to intervene, to create a different solution, will our bodies know what to do? You know, will we know how to move into that kind of action collectively? Um, So, you know, when I think about theater of the oppressed, uh, you know, it is this tool of, of liberation. It's this tool of posing many, many questions and inviting community to really practice this democratic sort of way of like developing solutions together and and of doing that with our full selves, not just, you know, our intellect. I, I, I'm just such a fan of that idea. And it reminds me of some of the ways that the communities I'm connected with as a game designer mm. Uh, I see them using role-playing a lot of the times uh, in a similar frame as a way to experiment with and play at embodying queerness, Mm. Um, often for people who are still trying to understand their queerness and their gender identity, ways of being that maybe they're still trying to manifest and articulate and feel in their bodies. It also feels like such a potent tool role-playing does Mm -hmm. for for rehearsing that. Mm In role-playing games, in that space, we have a lot of like supplemental structures and tools for handling just what comes up when you do that kind of rehearsal. Mm. Um, we were talking about this earlier, but there's a tool called um, aftercare, for example, yeah. which is a, a, a kind of formal acknowledgement of the fact that what you're talking about and what you're playing can escape out, in fact, in many cases, we hope it will escape out, which in role-playing is often termed bleed. Mm. And I'm curious, like, what do people do in those situations? Because like, I can imagine myself just having the potential of, and I'm sure that this happens for many people, an experience of being triggered and re-experiencing types of trauma. And I imagine that there's also a process there for caring for each other after the experience is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you named that because um, the the work of theater of the oppressed, like really intentionally asks us to explore really hard things. Um, and I think, you know, it's yes, a game. <laughs> There's lots of silliness, right? There's, mm-hmm because we live such serious lives, everything is so serious and we're adults now. And, and then in theater of the oppressed, you know, we're asking people to like get on the ground and move like a cow now act like, <laughs> you know, like um, find this like place of silliness and joy. But, but even accessing that, even accessing this like very childlike place is, is painful for many, many people. And let alone asking people to explore, you know, broader systems of oppression and and real experiences that they have had. There isn't like some formalized aftercare that is taught. But, you know, I was brought into theater of the oppressed through mentorship, through this lineage, you know, that goes back to Augusto mm-hmm. Bual and yeah, and really being trained um, by by Mark Weinblatt, who who's my mentor, who lives out mm-hmm. here in Washington. So there is kind of this modeling to to learn how to tend to each other and what I found in, in theater of the oppressed spaces, you know, even for myself, like when I've been asked um, to, like, I played a role in this, you know, public community forum theater of, of being a woman experiencing domestic violence. Mm. That is a real situation for me. That is not a hypothetical kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, 
was going through the work of unpacking all of that and then being in a play where my sort of co-conspirator who is a friend, you know, but is this man, you know, is suddenly saying the same things that, you know, that my father said or that a partner had said or done, you know, and then I'm like, I'm, I'm like frozen. I'm, I am now in tears. And then suddenly I'm like running out the door of this like rehearsal and I'm like, fuck everything, you know, like I can't do this. This is too much, you know? And so there is this facilitation point of like, what does Sarah need in this moment? Mm. And people have these tools, you know, so many people have these tools, not just, not just professionals, like it's something deeply human to, to witness someone in pain and in struggle and to just say, what do you need? Mm. What can I give to you right now? Right. And so I had a circle of people who came around me and said, you don't have to explore this any further than you want to, you know, this is your choice. This is your trauma to like to touch or to just pack away for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, and and theater of the oppressed is, is a is a tool that asks us which choice we want to make. Whether you are on stage or in the audience, the the whole thing, the whole premise is that we are all participants in making this. And and I can see a solution and decide I I don't want to be the person who goes up on stage and mm. does that, right? And I can see my own pain and I can say, not today, cannot touch that. <laughs> no, that is that is my agency. Um, and for me, Theater of the Oppressed taught me about that agency. And it, ta- and it taught me that if, if I want to explore my own healing, if I want to connect to the ways that I have experienced oppression in this world, and I want to do that collectively, there will be people who come and stand beside me and who who join me in exploring that and of supporting me in that. Sarah, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Mm, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it gave me a lot of place to to reflect on pieces of my story that I don't always tell um, because I'm harvesting other people's mm-hmm. stories. <laughs> this has been queers at the end of the world our show art is by the fabulous ellie yanagasawa get in touch for your own commission at ellie the cosmic jelly the music for this episode is la fin des ericotes by tintamare the show is produced and edited by me nino mcquown with marketing and technical wizardry by nat mesnard We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>